You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Alive, an ongoing and monthly conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing a part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom, paying attention to the way these films have shaped our imaginations. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we're talking about the 55th film in canon, 2016's Zootopia which is definitely not some cartoon musical where you sing a little song and your insipid dreams magically come true. No. In Zootopia, you play the song on your iPod Nano. It's totally different. With me, as always, you know what he thinks is weird? Clothes on animals. It's Michael Farmer. How you doing, Josh? I do think that's weird. That's true. (laughs) You know, there's not a ton of clothes on animals uh, uh, Disney movies. I I went back um to, to you know through the canon just to kind of think about this um the especially that's like specifically like this sort of genre where it's like uh so like there there are I, there are two clothes on animals scenarios there's the clothes on animals where it's a it's a human focused movie like uh cinderella or aladdin um where you know, Abu wears a hat. And Cinderella obviously dresses the mice. You know, <laughs> yeah, herself. yeah. For some for some reason, their humans dress them up as people. Yes, yeah. So there's that kind, um, and uh, then there's um, you know, like Robin Hood. I think is the most famous, probably like clothes on animals. But you know, there's the rescuers, great mouse detective. Um, you know, but that's that's really uh, so. The first one was Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which I almost totally forgot about. You know, and uh, that was way back in uh, 1949. But then there really the clothes on animals thing was really like a a, a mid 70s, early 80s thing, and then we haven't seen it again. You know, as, other than Chicken Little, Chicken Little is kind of an outlier. So it sounds to me, Josh, like there's quite a few examples of this. <laughs> Actually, oh, you, just, about... you just mentioned ten or fifteen movies. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I, I'm saying percentage-wise. I mean, we're talking about fifty-five movies. You know, this is the fifty-fifth one in the canon, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six. That's, yeah, six, that's true. You know, that's, that's, or something like, um, oh gosh, what's that movie called? Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company doesn't put clothes on the animals. Right. I mean, um, the little mermaid doesn't put clothes on Max. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. There is one scene in Oliver and company where the Chihuahua gets dressed up, but he gets dressed up by the, by the poodle. Right. Know? If this is torture, chain me to the wall. Yeah. That sort of thing. So I don't know. There's a, there's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I just feel like there's these, these, um, I don't know what you'd call them kind of, uh, perceptions, you know, of uh disney movies like clothes on animals oh yeah that sounds like a disney movie you know mm-hmm. but or, or you know all the princesses are blonde 
Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. And it's like, it's not, if you really look at the data, <laughs> if you can call it that, you know, it's not really exactly that. But I guess these, I guess those things play a larger role in our imagination. And it's, you know, like, uh, you know, there's always the, the goofy stuff with, um, you know, like Mickey Mouse wears pants, but not a shirt, you know. Right, Donald Duck, right. Donald Duck wears a shirt, but not pants, you know. Like, it's kind of, it's, it's weird. There's a really great, uh, the, I've know I've mentioned them on the show a few times, the, the more modern Mickey Mouse shorts. There's a really great one where, uh, Donald and, uh, and Mickey are, are, are trying to, uh, get into a restaurant where Goofy works. And, uh, but he's got the no, no shirt, no, no pants or no shirt, no shoes, no service sign, you know? And so they're, they're trying to decide who will, you know, they're going to swap the clothes out to make one complete outfit between the two of them. It's pretty funny. Much yeah, the, 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 the rules for all that in those universes where you have shared, like, human beings and a- animal-type characters so are always interesting. Victoria and I were watching The Muppets Take Manhattan um, over the weekend. And uh, The Muppets Take Manhattan, as you might know, there is a restaurant in which all the waitstaff are rats. But when mm-hmm. those same rats, and no- nobody thinks anything of it. When the same rats go to Sardi's, everybody completely flips out. <laughs> so, like, is this the only restaurant in Manhattan where rats aren't woke? Like, I don't understand how that works. I, I guess something similar is going on in some of these clothed animals movies. But, of course, that's not Zootopia, right? Because Zootopia makes a big deal. There's a big scene where there are nudist animals, and it's disgusting to our heroine, Judy Hopps. Yes. It's just... It's... You know, it's played for a laugh, and you know, I, it's it's just kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, this is a PG movie, right? Like this this movie, I, I I think we've kind of moved into the the period in Disney where the movies are for adults more than they're for children. Yeah, or you know, entertainment for the whole family or whatever, you know. Right, but I mean, we're we're getting to a point, and and we'll we'll be there in a in a few months anyway, where all the movies are about generational trauma and things like that, which are clearly clearly kind of aimed at a a particular sort of adult rather than at children. Yeah, there's a. I, I feel like Pixar really was the leader in this trend, and it, so it makes complete sense that Disney went this way, especially post uh, Disney Pixar merger. You know, where where the Pixar the Pixar uh, directors said, you know, time and time and time again, like, we're just making the movies that we want to watch. We're just making the movies we want to see, you know, and, uh, and it, when it works for the whole family, that's great, you know, um, but that's, that's, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, the, the, the classic criticism of, you know, creating, creating, um, you know, Happy Meal toys and then building a movie around that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not that I'm, I'm, I don't know that it ever went that far, that that's the way it went down, you know, but um, certainly we haven't seen that in our, you know, in our walkthrough of, of the canon. But, you know, I feel like that's kind of the classic criticism is like these things are just aimed at selling toys to kids. Right. So it feels weird to to complain that the movies are too adult when that's something we've kind of been asking for. Yeah. Well, I think it's just it's a shift. It's a sh- it's a cultural shift that we've seen over the over the time. You know, like I mean Snow White wasn't a kids movie either, you know. Right. It was like sure. at at some point in uh I mean it was probably 
with the rise of television and Saturday morning cartoons. But at some point in the American cultural zeitgeist, it became, oh, if it's a cartoon, it's for kids. End of story. Right. You know? right. Whereas, I mean, a lot of the shorts, the Silly Symphony shorts would have aired in front of regular adult movies, not adult movies as in pornographic movies, but movies that are not pitched at children. Yeah, not aimed specifically at kids. So, so yeah, now we're in this, yeah, this era where it's it's safe for kids because it's PG or, say, you know, quote unquote safe. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how safe this movie is, to be totally but, honest with you. But thematically, yeah, thematically, it's definitely more adult things. Yeah, I, I would be interested in hearing a child's opinion on Zootopia, or um, especially something like Encanto, which really is about like generational trauma. As I said, I, I don't I don't know how much like a, a six year old or a seven year old would would get out of that movie. Yeah, well, other than the kind of brightness of the colors and what what have you, you know, like it it's it has the like the appearance of a children's movie, but mm-hmm. Zootopia is basically Chinatown. It's a, it's a fairly dark movie. Yeah, I haven't seen Chinatown. Um, I'll have to interview my kids before we get to Encanto because they've seen that one. Uh, we didn't show them Zootopia. I think you kind of alluded to, you know, you don't know how safe this movie is. Like, it definitely gives off a a vibe that that my wife and I are not totally comfortable with uh, showing it to the kids, so they haven't seen it. Right. This is this is the first movie we watched. I I, I think Little Mermaid. I I made a case that Little Mermaid is an immoral movie, but this is this is the first movie we've watched where I really, if I had children, I don't think I would show it to them. Like I, I really, I really think the message of this movie is, is poisonous. And, and, and I haven't been able to say that about any of the other ones, even when I've taken issue with them. Um, but yeah, I, I find this movie fairly immoral. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's all the worse because it's that, you know, it's the, it's the classic, uh, spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down only mm-hmm. it's, it's like the worst. It's like the, the flip side of that, you know, or it's like the spoonful of, of <laughs> sugar makes the poison go down or something, you know, like it's like, it was it's such uh, a good movie, right? Like it's so well done. It's so funny. The animation is unbelievably good. Like I, I remember I watched this when it came out and I guess I've gotten more conservative since then because I didn't think anything of it. At the time, but rewatching this last week when I was preparing for the show, I, um, well, you know, I texted you and I, I just like, I could not stop complaining about the, um, the kind of noxious message of this movie, which I know we'll, we'll get into in a minute. Yeah. Well, actually we should, we should probably just start there since that's, that's kind of where we're already at. So, um, I've been listening to, uh, Bishop Barron. You actually are the one who, who originally turned me on to him. And I, I mentioned him in our last episode also. Um, and, uh, he's, he's been doing a, a series called understanding the present moment, which I've, I've really been enjoying. He's going through four, uh, thinkers and how, um, their philosophy have really helped shape our, our current time. And so, um, his his third episode in that series series is on um, Jean Paul Sartre, who I, I know you know a fair about fair amount about, definitely much more than I do. Um, but uh, this is the quote from that I wrote down from Bishop Barron. He says, um, "Essence comes first, and I conform my life to that." Uh, is like kind of pre-Sartre thinking. Essence comes first, and I conform my life to that. Sartre says it's time to reverse that. Existence comes first. Uh, by which he meant freedom. And he uses this term, uh, Bishop Barron does, of spontaneous self-creation, um, which I, I, when, I, when I heard him say that and I was thinking about this movie and anyone can become anything, that's, that's really what I, 
I just latched onto that. I was like, oh, this is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, philosophy come to life here. It, sh- it sure is. So yeah, the, the essay he's talking about there is, uh, it's it's the the one everybody reads when they're learning about existentialism. It's called Exist- uh, Existentialism is a Humanism. And you've got this famous line where he says that, where he says that um, the essence of existentialism, the thing that most existentialists would agree with, is that existence precedes essence, which means pretty much what you just had uh, Bishop Barron defining, the idea that there is no human nature. All there is is our freedom to create human nature, and thus with every action we commit, we we create human nature, which is something I think 10 years ago, certainly, I would have agreed with that now I, I, I really do find... Um, kind of monstrous and uh it's part of the reason for my conversion to catholicism is is my rejection of sartre and existence precedes essence but i think i don't think you have to be catholic to see what the problem with that is and it it's interesting um it's interesting to me that in in one way zootopia is not a major break with the message of of kids movies cartoons however you want to put it over the the 10 years preceding because i i feel like in the the first decade of the 21st century the message of most non-pixar non-disney animated features was essentially be yourself Mm -hmm. um and i mean it really got tedious what was the one there was one with ryan reynolds as a snail who wanted to be a a race car driver or some turbo is that the name of it I, I have no memory of that, but uh, yeah. you're you're luckier than you're luckier than I am. <laughs> it, it probably began with that that great whipping boy of this podcast, um, Shrek, right? Like I, I think I think that's that's pretty clearly what Shrek is up to. Just be yourself. Just be mm-hmm. yourself. And it's it's such a it's such a tedious message in some ways, but then Zootopia takes that message and goes one step further. And I think it goes even further than Sartre, actually, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute. But it says, really, there is no self. Um, just be whatever you want to be, and there are absolutely no limitations on that. And thus, predators, animals that are designed by biology, by God, however you want to think about it, to eat meat, don't have to be predators. Uh, so, I, I, like, first first of all, like, it's it's just a ridiculous statement on the face of it. So like, you know, we have birds, we have two parakeets mm-hmm. and a couple weeks ago we found a little kitten outside and we brought her in because she was, you know, out in the rain and she was crying and she was, you know, covered in fleas and miserable. So we thought we'd bring her in and maybe we could train her to not want to eat the birds, except as soon as she saw them, that's the only thing she wanted to do. She wanted to climb the cage <laughs> and eat the birds. And like, you can't be mad at her, right? Because she's right. a cat. That's what they're, that's what they're there for. It's it like, it's such a biological imperative that you could not possibly expect her not to want to eat the birds. So we had to give her to a rescue organization, which fortunately we did. And I'm sure she's been happily rehomed because she's a very sweet, very cute kitten. If you don't happen to be a parakeet. So this idea that like, (laughs) there are no biological or any other kind of limits on your freedom is, is faintly ridiculous in addition to being um, really dangerous in terms of wanting to say anything whatsoever about what human beings are. Right. So like if, if there are no limits to your freedom, and I think Sartre would agree with this, there's basically nothing you can say a human being is other than a human being is the self-creating creature. Mm. And I, I, I would encourage our listeners to go listen to that Bishop Barron um, episode that you're talking about. I mean, he um, 
he's well trained in philosophy, and I think he really explains the problems with uh, with that Sartrean viewpoint very well. Have you listened? Have, has the fourth one dropped? Has the Michel Foucault episode come out yet? Uh, it has come out, and I have not. I have not listened to it yet. I've got it queued up on my on my uh, podcast, but I. You know, I, I took time to listen to an episode about um, Phil Collins and Genesis. It seemed more important. You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the Michel Foucault of prog rock. Yeah. Basically. Prog pop, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I, I haven't listened to it yet either, but I, I wonder if maybe what we're looking at here is even more sinister than Sartre, though, because it's not that the predators chose not to be predators, right? The predators were like designed by this society, redesigned to be not predators. There, there's like a um, there's like a totalitarian social engineering background to this movie that I really find disturbing with how happy we're supposed to be about it. Right. The reason foxes don't eat rabbits in this universe is that they have been re-engineered by society not to eat rabbits, even though they still have very sharp teeth, which you got to wonder if if they're not supposed to eat rabbits, why do they have such sharp teeth if all they're going to eat is blueberries? <laughs> you know, what does this lion eat? You know, cats are obligate carnivores. They have to eat meat or they will die. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I mean, I know that I'm I know that I'm overanalyzing this movie the way we always do. But like I. I really think it's a contradictory movie and, and it might be its only saving grace is how contradictory it is, how even a child could look at it and say, oh, well, a lion can't not eat meat, right? right? Like that's what lions are for. Why does he have the sharp teeth? Why does he have claws? Why is he so much bigger than everybody else? Like there, there, there is a nature that lions have, just like there's a nature that human beings have and no amount of social engineering can really get you past it, I think is what I'm saying. But the movie is utopian. I mean, it's it's called Zootopia, right? It, it's a right. it's a utopian movie about this. That if we just socially engineer people, they will be able to choose to be whatever they want to be, unless of course they want to be predators as they were designed to be. Right. Yeah, you can't choose that. <laughs> I, so, like, I really I find this movie sinister and not at all in the ways that it thinks it is. Like the the Chinatown aspects of this movie that it thinks are so sinister. This cabal of of people behind the scenes trying to make animals act like what animals act like. I don't find that sinister. What I find sinister is this, this universe they have set up where um, the, the human being characters, right? The animals have moved beyond biology, not so much to be whatever they want to be, but to be whatever it's in the best interest of the government of this society to be. Mm. And, and like that, I like, I, I really find this movie disturbing and creepy and and the idea that there are millions of children who have seen it 20 30 times kind of freaks me out to be totally honest with you and i know i sound like an, a reactionary here and i'm I, I think i'm comfortable being a reactionary toward this movie because i i really find it um deeply deeply immoral right well let me uh <laughs> i'm going to talk more about the uh that utopian side of things uh but let me just drop a bible verse in here real quick um uh, the, that also came to mind. Uh, this is from Psalm 100, verse 3, and it's the it's the King James Version, not because I'm King James only, but just because that's how I learned this particular verse, so that's the way it came to me. But it was, uh, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And I think that's just like the 
the, you know, one of the many biblical responses you could make to this idea of you're just free to be uh, whoever you want to be and however you want to be. It's uh, that, you know, we, we have not made ourselves. Um, right, right. And so, I mean, Bishop Barron points out that if if that's true, right, if you're free to be whatever you want to be and, and there is no human nature, there's not really a way to judge other people's actions other than to say that's not what I want human beings to be. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's why I think there's something even more sinister going on here because we are supposed to judge other people's actions in this movie. They're allowed to be whatever they want to be, except they can't be carnivores, which is again the thing they were actually designed to be. Right. But why would you want to be a carnivore, Michael? I mean, isn't it? It's so much better this way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're evolved now. Like, I mean, anybody can be a jerk, but why would you want to be? You know. Like, <laughs> Be nice. Mean people suck. You remember that bumper sticker from the 90s? Yeah. (laughs) That is that is very nearly the the message of this movie. Mean people suck. Right. um, And, you know, the shame about this, Josh, is it's such a good movie. Like it, it, it is like aside from the toxic poisonous message of the movie it's so good it's such an enjoyable movie to watch it's so creative it's so much fun oh yeah the spoon the, i'm telling you the spoonful of sugar does a lot it's, it's really great <laughs> i want to um come back to you you started to touch on it i think um there i mean utopian literature or genre in general it's not just literature i guess uh you know it's got specific sort of uh tropes and expectations um most I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with this, but I, I feel like most utopias in some ways uh, tend to ter- tend to actually be dystopias. Right. Like when you when you dig into them. Um, right. Yeah. Utopia means literally no place. Yeah. So it's kind of the uh, you, you were kind of getting at it in a way that I hadn't even really thought about um, with, you know, what exactly happened, you know, at the beginning of the movie when uh, Judy Hopps is explaining it in her little uh, child's play, which was very. uh very Wes Anderson-y, I felt like. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good call. <laughs> super, I mean, it was super cute and a great way to do backstory. But um, as it comes through, uh, the way she tells the story is, uh, we just evolved into this. But the way you're telling the story, which I think is very compelling, is, you know, somebody had a hand in, uh, you know, shaping the the world to be this way, where the predators were uh, not allowed to be predators anymore. Right. Uh, like what, 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 um, competitive advantage would there be to a lion not eating meat, especially since they are like they're obligate carnivores. So you're having to, you, you're having to genetically engineer a lion who doesn't need to eat meat. And then you have to like, over the course of generations, keep them from eating meat such that there's a competitive advantage. And probably what you're doing is not allowing the carnivorous lion to reproduce but only um only allowing the so like i i I can see how there's evolution here but it's not going to be natural selection (laughs) yeah (laughs) so anyway i don't know if the movie has it i don't know if the movie has that reading in mind having that reading in mind definitely makes this okay there's a there's a dystopia behind this utopia i i wonder though if if this movie when I first watched it, at least, but I wasn't even thinking of, of that sort of reading of it. I was thinking, wow, this is a utopia that actually um, mostly stays a utopia, you know? Like, right, by, yeah. By the, the, end. The, the, threat, the threat is to the utopia, not from the utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I, I wonder what the creators had in mind, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think they mean for us to be disturbed by the backstory of this movie at all. I think, I think we're supposed to accept it as just obviously a good thing. Yeah. And you know what? If I were a rabbit, I probably would think it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, except but, that... Yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, just, you know, the, the main... Uh, the, I think Zootopia may have been the... You know, we've, we've talked about how we're in this era of, like, hidden villains, you know? Um, and the so from the movie standpoint, the villain is uh, uh, Bellwether, or is that her name? Yeah, Bellwether. Yeah. Um, and because she's she's the one who's actually manipulating the whole system to get the, the predators to see to be seen as dangerous so that she can gain political power. Because somehow in this utopia world, it's still the biggest animals who have the most say, you know, even though they're they're the one percent, I guess. <laughs> right. Or the ten percent, right? It's ninety percent right. um herbivore and ten percent carnivore. Yeah. Prey so, and predator. I'm sorry. They, they you couldn't call them carnivores anymore because they don't actually eat meat. Although what they eat is never shown. Right. Well, they but, eat uh they eat popsicles. That's true. <laughs> no, I don't. But yeah. So I. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, you said from a rabbit's perspective, maybe this is a better place. But from her perspective, it's it. There. The, the world hasn't gone far enough yet. You know, it's like, OK, we've gained a lot of advantages as as, uh, as predators, but but we're still not in power the way the prey are. And so we need to we need to go even farther in, in disrupting this this world, you know. Right. And the way the way you do that is by making predators act like predators. Yeah. And know. then we can then we can control them. Yeah. It's a weird movie. Bellwether, uh, by the way, I was annoyed that she was so small. If she's a sheep, sh- shouldn't she be like five or six times the size of Judy Hopps? But she's <laughs> roughly the same size. So what kind of sheep is she? Yeah, I don't know. Some sort Maybe of she was selectively bred to be a rabbit-sized sheep. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, if she were bigger, you wouldn't have, you would have suspected her from the beginning. But the fact that she's small allows you to underestimate her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she gets to show herself as the as the friend of Judy, you know, in this big this big dangerous city, you know, that her her parents are afraid to send her off to, even though even though it's utopia, they're afraid to send her there. Um, yeah, because they have the radical idea that foxes might want to eat rabbits. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a movie where biology is literally a bad word. Like, if you if you appeal to biology at all, you're a bigot. It's. <laughs> It's just an insane moral universe, and I'm probably I'm probably reading too much into it. But I don't know if you are. Like I I just I, I think because it's so much on the face of it. I mean the the they say it multiple times in the movie. Anyone can be anything. Like that is the. It's not just the like like sub theme of this movie or something. It is the right. it's the whole point of this it, movie. Is it's anyone, super liminal. Can be they, they they do everything but a, a human face appearing on the screen yelling at you everyone anyone can be anything yeah there's banners there's you know explosions you know all that <laughs> <laughs> like, and maybe maybe the idea that a in a in a world in which the mayor of the city is a lion maybe a bunny rabbit would not be the best cop it, like it, it's treated as just a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, 
Although I did wonder, like, do they have bunny rabbit cops in Bunny Town? Yeah, I wondered about that too. Like, where's the uh, representation? You know, like, I mean, who's who's patrolling Rodentville or whatever? You know, like when she right. runs through there, like she's she's a giant. You know, right? But yeah, there's uh, yeah, I don't know. We should get into the good sides of this movie. I feel like we really we should. Missed, I think I think I think we've made it. our objections clear. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody held on to see what good things there are about the movie, here it is. Yeah. Uh, Although I hesitate, I hesitate to tell anybody to watch it, especially like I I really cannot stress enough how how little I would like to see children watch this movie. So where do you want to start with 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 the good qualities of it? Like it, it I mean, it's it's amazingly well made. Mm-hmm. The the animation, the 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 kind of signature scene in this movie is the the sloths at the DMV moving really slowly, and that that scene is so amazingly animated because it's it's not just that they have done it at fast speed and slowed it down; they have animated it to be that slow, and it looks so good. Yeah, that is a great moment. And very hilarious. Yes. Yeah. The idea that everybody who works at the DMV would be a sloth (laughs) and they're, they're willing to slow that scene down so much. Like um, I'm I'm sure there was pressure to, to speed it up because it's boring. Mm -hmm. Right. But it, it holds on long enough being boring that it becomes hilarious. Right. And it works so well because, uh, because you, you have a, you know, we're we're supposed to identify with as the audience, we're supposed to identify with Judy. Right. right. And so in that scene, she's she's also bored, <laughs> you know. And so that's that I think that's how they get away with it. But I mean it works because she's you know, she's feeling the same way as the audience. But, only I mean, only like not I, seeing the humor in it, obviously. Like I said, that's the um that's the signature scene of the movie. That's the part I think everybody remembers if they've seen it. Um but there's there's a million little moments like that that are like super imaginative and funny and and really well done. Um, the the movie is really well put together. The fact she, so there's that that throwaway moment where she saves the shrew's life when the giant donut's about to land on her. Mm-hmm. She tells her she likes her haircut, and then that shrew turns out to be the mob boss's daughter. Right. <laughs> like that's that's really well put together. You don't see it coming, but also when it happens, you don't feel like you've been ripped off the way you do with the twist and frozen. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Like it, it they actually they actually prefigure everything really well so that if you were paying attention, you probably could figure out that Bellwether is the the person behind all this. It it's mm-hmm. not it's not a twist just for the sake of being a twist. And in that sense it really is like Chinatown. You should see Chinatown. It's a great movie. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, you're right. They did that, that actually it's that, it's that moment, that scene that really ties this all together where she chases the weasel. Um, the weasel who's played by Tudyk. Yeah. Um, his, his name is Duke Weaselton, right? Yes. His name is Duke Weaselton. Okay. Now here's a fact that we've mentioned him in the last couple episodes. Here's a fact that I didn't know until I looked it up. Um, because I couldn't believe that, that they got his voice again. And maybe you've known this, and not, and I just missed it. But in 2012, Tudyk voiced King Candy in Walt Disney Animation Studios' 2012 film *Wreck-It Ralph*, right. a, perf- a performance for which he won the Annie Award for voice acting. As of 2022, Tudyk has lent his voice to every Walt Disney Animated Studios film since. 
I did not know that. I knew he'd been in a bunch of them. I didn't know that he'd been in all of them. Yeah. He's, he's like their, their uh, uh, Ratzenberger. Yeah, exactly. He's their Ratzenberger. Ratzenberger, who is no longer lending his voice to every Pixar movie, by the way. But Oh, is that true? Why'd they stop? I'm not sure why they stopped. I don't know if they ever said why they stopped or if it was just, a, okay, this has gone on for, you know, 30 movies. It's <laughs> it's time to give it a break or, or what. I don't know. But yeah, I think I, I want to say... Uh, Luca was the first one he wasn't a voice in. Maybe I, for, I forget. I, I ah. shouldn't even. I shouldn't even speculate on it because I, I don't remember. But I, I do know that he's he's not uh, no longer in every single in every single one. But, but I did not know. I did not know that Tudic was in all of them. I knew he yeah. was in a bunch of them. And in in a few of them, he's just like animal voices, which is right. a little different than the uh, the Ratzenberger thing. But um, anyway. he also does not have as distinct a voice as Ratzenberger, mm-hmm. so it's not as it's not as obvious. Like yeah. Ratzenberger never sounds like anything other than Cliff Clavin. <laughs> right. And Tudyk, Tudyk is doing voices. Like I'm not sure anybody would have known that King Candy was him because he's doing such a great Edwin right, exactly. impersonation. Is he yeah. doing the same voice for Duke Weaselton that he was doing for the Duke of Weselton in present? Uh, well, he does. He makes the same joke. He says it's Weselton ah. or something like that. And so that's how I – that's what tipped me off to it, you know. Um but anyway, all that to all that to say, um, that's really the the hinge point in the plot of the movie because that's where you know she uh, what he is stealing is not in fact onions. It's the the whatever I don't know the the scientific name, but it's it's the sign you know the the thing that makes the predators turn back to predators. That's what he's he's stealing in that scene, and she she nabs him, and then uh, that's when you know she shaves the shrew, which is is going to be crucial later. You know, like it's really where the all the seeds are planted in that scene for for the end of the movie, which is you know it's 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 clever, and like you said, it's it's so creative and fun the way you know these you know the. Uh, you see it when the train first pulls up, you know, and there's like the uh-huh. tiny door and the and the mid- medium sized door and the big sized door, you know, like there's there's you know the the way they they've created this world where all the animals can coexist is is very imaginative and very clever. Yeah, and and yeah, a lot of fun, and and the movie's just so well put together in in almost every way. There's a there's a couple of loose ends that didn't make a lot of sense to me, but they're very small. It's it's just a it's it's one of the best written movies that we've seen just in terms of the actual screenplay of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the vo- the voice acting is great. Jason Bateman is wonderful as uh, as the fox. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of the part he's been he's been born to play because he's so smarmy, <laughs> uh, um, and he he plays it really well in the movie. I don't I don't like him in most things he's in. I think I think for the most part movies don't really know how to use him well. Mm-hmm. Arrested Development used him very well because, like, he's so convinced of his own goodness in Arrested Development, and the the audience is capable of seeing that in his way he's just as bad as anybody else in his family. Right. And they so he was a, he was a really good pick, and Jennifer Goodwin was a great pick for Judy Hopps because she's so earnest, and they work really well together. Like it's it's just really well put together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Kira. Uh, I don't. I'm gonna mess her name up. Um, Kira Ledomaki is the lead animator on Judy, um, which you know, in this computer animated era, era, we haven't talked as much about the animators, but um, I really was impressed by her her animation of Judy and the facial expressions and uh, you know the way the way she's able to communicate so much non verbally. 
uh, with Judy is really impressive. Um, she reminded me a lot, actually, of um, uh, both um, both our heroines from uh, Tangled, uh, Rapunzel, and uh, from Frozen, uh, Anna. Um, like both of them, I feel like had had really nice, you know, facial expressions too to mm-hmm. to communicate a lot. Um, but to do it on a rabbit is is slightly different, you know. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I felt like she did a, she did a really great job. I don't know um, who the lead animators were on on uh, on Tangled and on Frozen, so I I don't I don't know if it was Kira on all of those. But there I I saw like a, a through line resemblance. But definitely whatever, you know, whatever cues they're taking in within the studio, uh, Kira, Kira was bringing it to to another level today. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's really good animation. Her eyes are so well done and, mm-hmm. and they have to be because you have to feel for this. I was going to say this woman, this rabbit, you have to you have to feel for her because you you have watched her fight her way up from the bottom, um, except she doesn't get that far up. And so you have to um, you have to appreciate how um how painful that is for her even though don't you think most new cops probably start by doing some sort of menial (laughs) like what makes her think she should be like a lead detective her first day on the force except that i guess you could be anything you want to be yeah exactly like in any kind of limits she runs into we're supposed to see as unfair yeah yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, meter maids are probably their own job. I don't. I don't imagine that that's something that runs through the police uh, department. Although maybe it is, but um, it it just I I would imagine that most new cops' first job is like patrolling the streets, not not looking for fourteen disappeared predators. Yeah. Well, yeah, that could be. Definitely, Bogo gives voice to that. Uh, the uh, the police chief in her precinct. Uh, yeah. he's one of my favorite characters in the movie. I really yeah, yeah really well done. He's like, don't care. <laughs> We've got some rookies here. Don't care. <laughs> we have to address the elephant in the room. Yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Pretty well done. A nice joke. And uh, yeah, that that character is voiced by Idris Elba from uh, The Wire. Yeah. Doing his natural British accent, he's okay. uh, he's he's terrific. But I mean, really, everybody is terrific. There's not a there's not a bad performance in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Other than maybe Clawhauser, Nate Torrance's Clawhauser. What do you uh, what do you think of that character? Who? Which one's Clawhauser? Clawhauser is the uh, cheetah who works oh, as the right. dispatch okay. agent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was fine. He was playing the Josh Gad role. Yeah, basically. I was actually surprised to see it wasn't Josh Gad. I th- yeah, and this movie is not going to age well, I don't think. Why like, do you say that? I mean, like, his character feels very of our current moment, you know? Like, just, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel like that's a character that you get in the in other you know in er, in earlier movies like i i don't i don't know what i don't know how you necessarily define that character but like i don't know there's there's just there's something about him that just feels very present and then all the technology stuff 
Um, you know, like one one of the main things that I remember about his performance is, you know, the he's got the app where you can stick your head onto the the body or whatever, you know. Like is it you can deep I, maybe, fake it. Yeah, you can deep fake. I mean, maybe that stuff sticks around for the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Maybe we're still fascinated by that. But it may be one of those things where we look back on it and it's like, you know, it it just feels incredibly like of a moment, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that was part of the problem with uh, Oliver and Company too, right? Is is so much of the Oliver and Company relies on mid '80s pop culture. Mm-hmm. The thing I was thinking of in terms of it not aging well was all the Breaking Bad stuff with the the chemists on the subway train. Oh yeah, like that's just basically the the characters are just straight out of Breaking Bad. Yeah. See, I haven't seen Breaking Bad, so I, I didn't know that. But yeah, well, then makes... I mean, if you can appreciate that scene without knowing Breaking Bad, maybe it'll age perfectly well. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. But even her playing her music with the, you know, the wide earbuds and stuff, like I don't know, all that stuff's just going to go away eventually, you know? Right. I mean, it already has in a lot of ways. You know, like Which I mean, is... I know everybody's. I mean, she's got wires, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's an iPod Nano, you know, like how dated. <laughs> it must have been dated even when it came out, right? 2016? I feel like everybody had already switched to iPhone by then. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, she has an iPhone also. Oh, they but she both. listens to her music on a Nano. Yeah, it seems like it. I don't know. She muzzle times with her uh, her family instead of FaceTimes. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yuck, 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 yuck. But yeah, like how, you know, how long is all that stuff going to last? I don't know. Well, and it'd be one thing if it was set in, so that new Pixar movie, is it going red or seeing red? I can't remember. Turning red, I think. Turning red. Yeah. The the one about the, the, um, the menstruation allegory. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm reading into that. I think that's just, that's uh, on the surface that it's a menstruation allegory. Anyway, that is set in a particular time right it's set in 1997 or whenever and so they can have fun with all these pop cultural references without it ever seeing seeming dated Mm. but this this movie is set in some sort of futuristic utopia so it's weird that they all have technology from 2013 right especially since the movie came out in 2016 but it takes a while to make a movie yeah yeah so i don't know but i uh i did like you know, speaking of the technology thing, you know, I like how they, I like how they used it in the movie. So like, um, you know, she, she FaceTimes or muzzle times or whatever with her parents, uh, early on. And, and you see her like put on the happy face and stuff, you know, which, yeah, I, I, again, it's just helping us identify with the character and where she's at, you know? Um, and it really, I, I mean, it's it's a good character moment to see, like, how, you know, what's going on with her. And then, um, you know, her parents see that she's in the meter maid uh, outfit and they're so thrilled and excited because she's safe. And it's uh, it's very funny. Um, but then, of course, you know, when she's trying to, like, be a spy later, not a spy, but, you know, undercover later. And then she gets the call, you know, and it, it sets off that whole chain of events where they have to run away. Very, you know, like... Again, like this, this movie is just well made. Um, the other thing I like about that, the technology use, is that they use it to. Um, there's a lot of times in this movie where the music seems uh, incidental, but it's actually non-incidental. 
um, because it's actually it like uh, it's that same scene where she you know gets off the phone with her parents and the the radio's playing this like sad song um, just musically in the background and then her neighbors yell at her to turn it off turn off that sad music you know right but it just sounds like the the soundtrack of the movie so even though they make fun of this movie I mean Bogo very explicitly says this isn't a musical like that was um, that was Howard Ashman's sort of innovation uh was making the music uh non-incidental you know uh in that's that's how musicals are powerful is when the music doesn't feel incidental or whatever um and that, they've gone away from that in the last you know however many movies that have been not musicals but in this one it's not a musical but they still find a way to to work the music in so well, and yeah, and they and they use pop cultural music much more effectively than something like Chicken Little does, right? Because the song you're talking about is "Everybody Hurts" by REM, right? Well, yeah, she. I mean, when she's flipping through the stations, "Everybody Hurts" comes on, but then I think there's just like a you know, it's just like a score style ah. background music, but then the the neighbors used to cut off. It's it's a. I don't know if they're the first movie to make that joke, but there's been movies since that have made that. Like the new Buzz Lightyear movie has that same joke in it like he's you know saying something you know really uh you know when you would expect to hear the music swelling in the background and the music is swelling in the background and he turns and it's his his colleague is like playing it you know <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like that that sort of joke i feel like it's it's popped up in several movies um i don't know if this was the first one to do it but back to the future three did a joke like that um have you seen that back to the future three uh-huh Oh, yes, definitely. So you know, there's the scene at the beginning where Doc has passed out when he sees Marty come back from from 1950 or from from the future. Right. Uh-huh. And he has to the other Doc has gone to 1885. And so he wakes up in his house and he sees Marty and he flips out and he moves backwards and he lands on an organ, which starts playing. Oh, yeah. Like suspenseful, <laughs> suspenseful music. I do like I do like this kind of postmodern gags with yes. the. Uh, with the the score yeah yeah that's right that's a good one i had forgotten about that moment and and for all i know that's not the first that's not the first score to to do that but you're right like it's a it's a fun thing here and the the score in general is well done it's uh michael giacchino who probably best known for doing up Mm -hmm. the wonderful score for up yeah although he's done so much stuff i mean he's really a modern day John Williams. You know, John Williams is just the amount of stuff that he does. Like, yeah. he's just, he's, you see his name in so many movies. Yeah, he's a, he's a great, um, a great film composer. You know, you, you mostly don't want to notice the score if you can help it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also good scores you can go listen to and enjoy them as music, even apart from the movie. And um, there, there really aren't that many. There really aren't that many scores that you, you you don't they don't call attention to themselves when you're watching the movie, but you can listen to, and enjoy. And and the Star Wars score that uh, John Williams did is a great example of that. But Up, I think, is probably my favorite movie score just to hear. Like it's mm-hmm. it's really beautiful music. The the married life theme, which everybody knows if they've seen Up, and maybe even if they haven't, is just uh, just wonderful. And th- this yeah. score is not up to that standard, but what is. Um, it, it, it just works really well with the uh, with the movie. I haven't listened to it on its own. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the pop song? 
the big i mean the big pop song it's annoying is it supposed to be annoying like are we supposed to <laughs> are we supposed to think that gazelle is a great a great singer and that the pop culture in this world is beautiful and wonderful or are we supposed to see it as the, the kind of disposable pop that shakira actually makes i'm not sure that's a, that's a good question <laughs> it's certainly not shakira's best song yeah it's no I, hips don't lie I, I don't know you don't know that song you were in china when that song came out yeah you had, like you had like just moved to china yeah i also i feel like i'm uh oddly ignorant of a lot of you know pop music i just i envy you <laughs> <laughs> i wish i was less knowledgeable about contemporary culture yeah i don't know it's got its perks, I guess. But I felt like it was fine for the movie. I mean, the way the movie set it up, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of the big concert scene in a movie. You yeah. Know? Like that. I don't know. It feels very weird to me. But I don't know. I feel like I'm talking about out of both sides of my mouth because I mentioned, you know, that I I like the way that the music is is non incidental. So you know, being at a concert and hearing the hearing the song. Makes sense, you know, so. Well, well here it seems um, uh, not necessary, whereas in a movie like Turning Red, the, pop, the the concert in Turning Red is like a super important part of the of the movie. Yeah. So it's I, not, I, I, I agree. It, it like, and, and here it just seems like an excuse to bring everybody back and perform for the credits. Yeah. Which, I mean, I, I don't know. There's there a, are worse things. Yes. I mean, it opens with a, uh, you know, a, a child's play, and then it ends kind of that way, which you know, it's it's very theatrical. I feel like, like I feel like, um, I mean, I haven't gone to like the theater, but like, um, you know, if you go to high school musicals or high school uh, drama performances, you know, the you know the cast comes out at the end and bows and stuff. You know, you you need an excuse to get everybody to come out together and stuff. So it's fine. Right. But it also owes something to like the um, the Marvel credits, right? Where the where all the credits are always a uh, you know a, a kind of event of their own, right? Yeah. I didn't stick around to see if there was a post credit scene. I can't remember now, and I'm, I'm sure I watched it to the end because I always do, but I don't, I don't remember. I feel, like, I feel like Marvel has made it where there has to be a post credit scene for everything now. Yeah, well, that's very true. That's very true. I, I don't remember. It's totally whatever it was, if it was there, it's totally out of my head. Um yeah. Let's see. The other thing I liked in this movie, I you know, I always like callbacks to old, or earlier things. When uh-huh. Judy when Judy gets annoyed, she uh thumps her foot like thumper. Oh, I didn't. I didn't pick up <laughs> on that. Which is a really old, really long callback. I, you know, but Bambi, I think, uh, is my favorite of all of these that we've seen. So I, I was going to ask if that was still your favorite. I knew it was for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of a. It kind of goes back and forth between that one and 101 Dalmatians. But oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're like very, one of the very, most lushly animated movies versus one of the cheapest. Yes, they're very, very different movies. I, I admit, but I enjoy both of them. I think my favorite is probably still Sleeping Beauty or Robin Hood, another lushly animated <laughs> versus cheap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they give you different things. Great. 
Right. I imagine once we finish all these movies, we'll have an episode where we just kind of debrief on what we have seen, what we liked best. Yeah. That sort of thing. Speaking of Robin Hood, didn't you tell me there's like a fan theory that this is like the uh, the continuation of the Robin Hood universe? I didn't tell you that because I haven't heard that. Oh, okay. I thought it, that came from you. So, so the idea here is that this is like millennia later after, yeah, after, after animals have been whatever. socially bred to 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 change their personalities. <laughs> Not I their guess. personalities. That's the weird thing. Their personalities don't change really. It's just their uh, their preferences. Yeah. Well, there is a difference. I mean, in Robin Hood, I mean, in Robin Hood, number one, they don't get into it at all. You know, it's definitely there's definitely a, a prey versus predator thing happening in Robin Hood to a certain extent. Um, except that, of course, Robin Hood is. A fox, you know. And right. He's on, and he's on. Well, the side. and also he's Little John. Yeah. The the so. prey and the predators live comfortably together there too. We talked about maybe it wasn't on this show. Maybe it was when we did Robin Hood on the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, that Maid Marian must constantly want to eat Lady Cluck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe she was. Maybe she was bred not to. Yeah, maybe so. But obviously, Robin Hood. Robin Hood feels so much different than this movie. So. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is much more knowing than Robin Hood is. It's it's Robin Hood is so joyful. It's it's almost just like a blast of joy. And this movie is is cynical in a particular way, in a way that behooves it. Like it it kind of should be, um, given the the genres that it's playing with. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the uh, to go back to the pop music thing for just a second. Like I think I think that's where this it, it works in this movie. Because the, you know, and the, the throwaway pop song thing is, it is, it's got a weird kind of, uh, it's got a weird kind of joy. I don't know if joy is the right word, but there's a weird kind of like just upness to it, high energy to it, you know? And I, I, like I just, I think it. it's so imaginative, the movie is, that uh-huh. like you can feel the filmmaker's excitement in putting this universe together. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Like, because you don't know what's going to come next, and it, it's almost like they don't know what's going to come next either. Right. This is this is certainly. Uh, I was going to say it's the most imaginative we've had in a long time, but it, it I think has a lot in common in that sense with Wreck It Ralph, which yeah. is also directed by Rich Moore. Yeah, I was just going to say that. that was, Rich Moore came in on Wreck It Ralph. Uh, he did this one. He does Ralph Breaks the Internet. That's that's the only ones he's done so far for uh, Disney, but. Um, yeah, and Wreck It Ralph, you have the the different universes, and there's there's definitely that same sort of you can feel the filmmakers, kind of just you know excitement of these different worlds that they've gotten to create, come through. Um, I don't know if that's as true for Ralph Breaks the Internet. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, definitely between Wreck It Ralph and Zootopia, that's definitely a through line. I would say is that that excitement comes through. Well, and, and not for nothing, he was a. Uh he was one of the directors on the, on Futurama, which also has that quality, right? Like mm-hmm. Futurama is such a big universe that there's no telling what's going to happen next. And that's one of the things that makes that show so much fun, at least until that show stopped being fun, which it did. Yeah. I wonder if there's actually like a, like a underlying, like 
kind of a creative philosophy there. I've never read any interviews with Rich Moore or anything, so I don't know where he's at with that. But like, I wonder if he's the kind of writer who kind of writes with that, like, I don't know where this is going. I'm just going to let, you know, let the process surprise me type thing, you know? Well, and like, weren't there, I guess it's, it says there's only two screenwriters for this. I was thinking at the end of the movie, there were like seven names. Maybe he, um, maybe he, cause he did not write this. Maybe he came up with a story. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not actually not sure. I knew he directed it, but I didn't, I didn't write down my, often I'll write down the credits of who wrote it and stuff. And I didn't on this one. The other director, while you're looking, if, if that's what you're looking at is uh, Byron Bar- Howard, Byron Howard, uh, who started, you know, he's, he's more of a, a through line to the old Disney in a way. Um, <laughs> I mean, at least back to Pocahontas, which is weird calling Pocahontas old Disney, but definitely, you know, um, it's it's definitely farther back than Wreck-It Ralph, you know. Um, and he directed Bolt. Uh, he directed Tangled. Uh, he directed this one. And then he directed Encanto, which is the other one that you've you've mentioned, you know. Uh, right, yeah. And that, that I wonder when we get to Encanto, if I'll look back and say, oh, this has a lot in common with Zootopia. Yeah. So. Very interesting, very interesting. I liked Encanto probably half as much as everybody else seemed to, hmm. but that's uh, for a different uh, for a different time. Yeah, in a few. I months. mean, that's for what five months from now. It's not that far away. It is not that far away. I think it's. Uh, well, we'll get it. We'll get it next year. And, and if my schedule right here is right, we'll. It'll, it'll be uh, like March. It'll come out in February or March. Yeah. I guess it'll come out in March. We'll, re- we'll record in February because my schedule has the recording times. Yeah, I do apologize that this episode is a week late. Although, I mean, maybe maybe people weren't too mad because we usually release on the first Thursday of the month. And this time, the first Thursday of the month was the first. So maybe people didn't think anything of it. But I was yeah. sick last week when we were going to record. You can still hear that I'm a little froggy. So, well, yeah. Anything else to say on this movie, Michael? I I just like like I said, I'm of two minds about it because on the one hand, the quality of the movie is so high, and the the kind of underlying philosophy of the music movie is so poisonous. Mm-hmm. So I I I could not say that I would recommend people watch it, but if they watch it, they will probably enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think it's uh maybe I don't know you know, uh, what our show necessarily offers. Um, you know, I, I know what I say at the beginning about, you know, thinking about the way that we, these films shape our imagination and, um, hopefully adding some enjoyment to the experience. Um, you know, I, I do think it's, it's, uh, it's something worth thinking about. And I know that we tend to overthink movies more than like the common person. So maybe, you know, maybe if you've watched this movie, you know, it'll, it'll give you the opportunity to kind of think through what is, you know, what is really going on here and, and should it be something that I approve of and, and whatnot. Right. Overthinking it is kind of a inoculation against believing it, I think, or at least believing it too, too easily. Right. So maybe that's, maybe that's a service we've offered to our, to our fans. (laughs) 
I, I will say, I mean, one good thing about it is it's a movie <laughs> All that... All our training has prepared us for this moment. We, we overthought 54 movies so that at movie 55, we had, you know, we, we could stand against. We were inoculated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, one thing I will say for the movie is that it has a female heroine who is not primarily concerned with getting married. Which we've had some other ones that are like that, but this one there really is no romance at all. It's it's a movie in, in a certain way about friendship, and mm-hmm. and that's nice to see. Like it's 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 nice to, it, and that's another thing it has in common with Wreck It Ralph, I suppose. But I, I appreciate that it's a different kind of story than some of the other ones that we've watched. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Michael, because I feel like. Um... One of my criticisms of the of the modern age, and this, I'm not alone in this criticism. Like, I, I mean, I didn't make this up or anything, but like, the lack of forgiveness in our culture is, you know, everything is unforgivable. Um, there, there is a really that I feel like that is actually a really moving scene in this movie when Judy goes to. Um, the fox. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. I'm blanking on this. Nick, thank you. And Judy, go- <laughs> it wouldn't be an episode of Before They Were Alive if I didn't blank on the name of a main character. Um, <laughs> Judy goes to Nick and really lays it out like I was wrong. I was a jerk, and you know you don't have to take me back as a friend. I totally understand if you're not going to, you know. Um, but I need your help again. Like, that's, that was, I thought that was a really powerful scene, and I felt yeah. like Nick proves himself to be a great character in that he does forgive her, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. That is a, that is a good part of the movie. And you, you don't necessarily see that in a lot of movies. Yeah. It, it's willing to let the heroine be, to do the wrong thing. Even if like, again, the, the wrong thing is suggesting that predators eat prey. <laughs> right. So you are, you already have to accept the kind of viewpoint of the movie in order to, to see that as, as something she needs to apologize for. But right. In the in the world of the movie, it is a thing she needs to apologize for, and it's it's nice to see somebody apologize and yeah. and be forgiven, and the forgiveness not be easy. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, yeah I, I I agree. That's good. Yeah. Well, that's a positive note to end it on. I don't know. You think we should end there? End on yes, a high. Yes, I do. All right. Well, that was good. Um, let's see. What are we doing next month? Moana. Oh yeah. This is the uh the beginning of, of Lynn Manuel Miranda's introduction into the Disney world, right? That's true. He's trying to uh, he, trying to avoid following up Hamilton by doing a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So he, when when was Mary Poppins Returns? That must have been right around this time too. I think it was around the same time. I don't remember which one actually released first. I don't either. But yeah. We'll, we'll I haven't seen Moana we'll, since it came out, so we'll I'm talk interested. about it next next time. My kids love Moana. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Moana, so yeah, we got we'll have, we'll have plenty to say on Moana. Great. Uh, we got to an hour on this. I wasn't sure we would. We actually, I think, said more positive things than negative things about Zootopia. Yeah, you just had to listen through the first, you know, 20 minutes to get to it. <laughs> that's, that's right. Hopefully, people made it through. Hopefully, the mini fans of Zootopia didn't stop listening. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. Well, our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Uh, we're on the old interwebs at before they were dot live and christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at before they were live at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
We also want to encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer and Joshua Altman-Chopper, oh cripes, here come the waterworks. <laughs>